like I said, welcome to Living at the 45. I'm very honored today um, to be talking to uh, a brother from the other side of the country, East Coast. And uh, it's funny, and, and I, I use the word brother for a different reason than most people would think. Um, I don't know how Art found it, because I first learned about you through the figure eight, which I've been obsessed with, which I've been obsessed with for about 30 years. Right. Um, I've been, I studied a guy named Rudolf Steiner. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a big figure eight oh, yeah. guy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I studied him for years and uh, went to a couple of Steiner colleges up in Northern California, Southern California. But anyway, that's, that's why I feel like we are somewhat brethren in that respect. Plus, uh, I think I told you I played some ATA events back right. in the day, but let yeah. me introduce you again. It's Art Carrington. Like I said, it's a true honor. I, in my in my opinion, uh, Art, you're a living legend. You are, and um, thanks for having me, Jack. My Have pleasure, and 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 I really, um, I got to tell you, I, I've been thinking about this um, discussion we're going to have quite a bit. I don't see how I can wrap it up in an hour because I got more questions than uh, <laughs> you know just on this one topic, and I've got a few topics I'd like to discuss with you. So hopefully you'll Wait, we, we'll have a good time. All right. So let's get your, where you want to start. Let's, I want to start with the ATA and I must've been sleeping under a rock because I just realized after reading your book, um, uh, Black Tennis, which I have right here on my coffee table now, and it'll never leave my coffee table. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I, I just pick it up all the time and just read a different, uh, just a different article or just look at some pictures. And I, I love history anyway. But certainly tennis history is a big deal to me. So uh, this is the book we're going to talk about. And it, it's, it's like a history of the ATA, really. And right. um, exactly. so that's where I'd like to stick with our focus today, Art, is uh, just on the ATA itself, which is a huge, yep. a huge thing. And I'd like to, uh, instead of asking the obvious questions, I kind of like to get in the nitty gritty of it just a little bit. Um, so uh, please say hello and introduce yourself to everyone. And Hello, everyone. This is Art Carrington speaking. I'm up here in Amherst, Massachusetts at Hampshire College, where we have an indoor complex called the Multisports Center with the Bay Road Tennis Club. We got four indoor courts, track, fitness center, and 10 outdoor courts and eight pickleball courts. Oh. So, you know, we got a complete facility up here. I've been at Hampshire College since 1980. I'm from New Jersey originally. My wife is from East Hampton, Massachusetts, and I started summer camp up here in uh, 1980 at Hampshire College. I've been at Hampshire College since then. Okay. Okay. That's a big, that's a nice size facility. That's perfect. Hey, you got a nice facility. Uh, Amherst College plays matches here and practices. University of Massachusetts plays matches uh, and practices here. So, um, you know, we got a pretty active facility. Now, wait a minute, Amherst, that's, is that D3, right? Or D2? Yeah, D3, D3, one of the top schools, and UMass is D1. So we what? have, you know, we have D1 schools coming in here playing matches against UMass. We have top D3 schools in the conference coming in playing uh, Amherst College. One of my boys that I coached, uh, Warren Wood, he won the D3 in 2015, but the guy he beat was the guy from Amherst. That's why I kind of remember it. Okay. Okay. All so right. Amherst is a pretty tough, uh, that's a pretty tough school. Yes. Yeah, good. Uh, very good academic school. And, oh yeah. Uh, oh, strong yeah. Tennis program. And good yeah. tennis. Yeah. 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 They're always on the top of D3 and so, uh, go ahead. 
Well, no, I was going to, I was going to read a paragraph to you that would okay. open this up. This is Time Magazine, uh, weekly news magazine, August 28th, 1939. Okay. It's called Jim Crow Tennis. Huh. Um, excuse the language because we're speaking in an old language, but I just want to read it in the language that it's in. Negroes are not permitted to play Major League Baseball are not tolerated in big time tournaments of the U.S. Golf Association or the United States Lawn Tennis Association. They have their own American League and National League, their own all-star baseball game. They have their own National Golf Association, which puts on championship matches. But at no sport are they more firmly organized than at tennis. Since 1916, United States Negroes have banded together in the American Tennis Association, which not only serves as the governing body of 150 Negro clubs and 25,000 players, but also gives upper crust Negro doctors, lawyers, teachers, and preachers a chance to shine socially. Now, the 1939 ATA Nationals took place a week before this article. And being a history man, I know that somebody, a writer in the Time organization, read in the black news media about what was going on in black America. And they saw that the ATA Nationals, they saw this article in the 1939 ATA Nationals in Hampton, Virginia, Jimmy McDaniel won. And it was a very, very famous national because it was at Hampton University, which was Hampton Institute at the time, and Buckwell Beach, Private Beach, and, you know, it was really uh, something. And so this writer from time wrote this article. Now, I just read the opening paragraph and, you know, the rest of you know, it, I don't need to read anymore. So where it says, but at no sport, you know, was, was more organized than in tennis. Now, that's where we start. People don't know this. They yeah. know yeah. Negro Baseball League, but they never thought about what do you think about the Black elite, the Black Middle class, we didn't have a leisure class, so we, nobody inherited money. So our upper class did not consist of, you know, inherited. So, but people don't know what did our leisure class of people, what did our educated, what did our private business people do? What did we do? So as early as 1898, we had our first inter-club tennis match in Pennsylvania at the, um, it was in Philadelphia. And it was at the Colored Williams Women's YMCA. And they called it the National Club, the National Championship. That's where for, you know, Af black clubs. And these clubs came from Boston to, to D.C. primarily. That's where the players came from. And that was the start. By 1915, when they were had to start in 1898 with this annual club event, by 1915, they had the idea, let's start a, an organization that is a national organization to bring more black people in to make more, but they call it colored citizens, make the colored citizens, everybody that was left out of the USTA, you know, segregation was a norm. So we're not was, going to yeah. talking about segregation. I don't no. need it. No. That was the Jim Crow part of tennis. So, so in 1916, the American Tennis Association was founded as a corporation. And then in 1917, the first national championship was held. Now, originally, the first nationals 
were always held where you had to really, it was like a who's who in black America event. You had to have a friend that you could stay at their house. There were no commercial facilities that we could, you know, really resorts or anything, hotels and whatnot. We didn't have that. And so you had some colored wise that could house people. But so the first 18 national championships were, you know, like I said, a who's who event. By 1925, it went on to a, campus in New Jersey. We had uh, a school called the uh, New Jersey uh, Training School. It was a school for Black people called Bordentown. It was in Bordentown, New Jersey. Yeah, familiar. Training school and um, at Bordentown, they decided to have the first national championship on campus. It was such an extravaganza that that's when it was decided that they would now take the black championships on to college campuses, black college campuses. And, you know, we'd have 5,000 people come because we had this clustered, you know what I mean? The isolated environment on these black yeah. campuses. And that's, you know, that's where, and that event grew and grew and the American Tennis Association developed clubs around the country, educated, and that's where black tennis, that's how Arthur Ashe, Althea Gibson, myself and all us black tennis players, got exposed to tennis in those days through this system that was put together with these clubs all over the country through the ATA. Well, you know, like I said, reading your book for the last six or seven days, I, I've been opening up a whole new can of worms. You know, I, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. The sport began in, I think, 1847 in France. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, that's I what I always was, heard that tennis it, began it, in it, France. Around 1874. Oh, okay. Then I had it wrong. You know, incorporation of the game, I believe, was about 1874. In Europe? Yeah, in England. So you, so the ATA was developed right after? Well, Booker T. Washington, uh, slavery, right after slavery, in 1890, Booker T. Washington built the first tennis court at a black college in 1890. That wasn't yeah. 30 years after slavery was over. You know what I mean? Right. So, so um, that's where it began in Black College at, at Tuskegee in the South. And tennis in the North, well, if you lived in the North, you had a lot more opportunity than you did in the South. So sure. tennis in the South for Black people was primarily played at Black colleges and on private courts and private yards or small private clubs. In the North, we had small private clubs as well as we could play in public parks. So on the cover of my book is a picture of Forest Park in Springfield, Massachusetts, where the Basketball Hall of Fame is, in 1925. Mm -hmm. Austin, up in, you know, you could go down and you 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 could play in public parks in New Jersey. Certain places you could play, you know, and, and you you weren't run you didn't run into that segregation thing. So. It, in the north, you had primarily Black Americans, and you had Caribbean population because they came from Jamaica and Barbados and Trinidad and tennis was in their background in English colonies you had the people with so everywhere originally that white tennis existed black tennis existed yeah you're right and huh. that's what you're going to see in the book so you see that Boston Longwood Boston was a, a hub for black tennis players then you go down to the um Orange Lawn in Orange, New Jersey. Then we're in New Jersey. We we in 
you go to Chicago, you had the Prairie View Club, you, and you went to New Orleans. That's where tennis really grew. Boston, you know, along the East Coast, Chicago, and um, New Orleans is where tennis first grew in America. The French in New Orleans had the pop. And then the East Coast, we had these grass court clubs. And, you know, most tennis joined forces with cricket clubs and croquet clubs and right. clubs. And so it started on lawns. And that's these are the facilities that had lawns. Now, my, my personal case, um, coming from Elizabeth, New Jersey, I lived right on the water. You cross the water, you're in New York, Staten Island. Now, right. this American lady was supposed to have had the tennis come into Staten Island. That's one of the two places they say tennis first came. So it came into New Jersey really quick. And in Elizabeth, New Jersey, uh, the Elizabeth Town and Country Club at the time was one of the founding members in 1881 of the USTA, USLTA. USLTA, that's right. Yeah. And, and New England, and so, I, I played New England. It was the NL, NELTA. Right. That's right. So in my neighborhood, we had a Black-owned tennis club, but it was the backyard of a white doctor that had a double lot. The only house in the area that had a double lot. And at the back of that double lot started a Black neighborhood. Ah. This white doctor had built two tennis courts in his yard. So I'm talking about 1900, 1910. Wow. He let the blacks in the neighborhood play because it was, like I said, it was this double lot that backed up to their neighborhood. So he allowed them to play. And eventually in like 1920, he deeded it and sold the tennis courts to black people for a club and then sold his home because the area was becoming more commercial. And so that's how... I got to have these tennis courts. It was only two, two. These were two courts owned by the Black Club, and then there was a Elizabeth Town and Country Club, which was like an eighth of a mile away from me that I never saw, went in, or had anything to do with it. And I'm glad that I never did because I never felt like I was left out of anything. I, I thought that tennis was a black game. Yeah, black club, out there, Gibson, all kind of people coming through here, and she was number one in the world. So, and I never saw any other tennis. So I thought tennis was a black, <laughs> that was a black really? game, that's what I thought, you know what I mean? And so it wasn't until I got good, ventured out, I had game, I started going to play in local tournaments. And, and so I played USTA, I played, in my early start, I played ATA, that was my start. And then I played, because of the early 60s, late 50s, I played in. USTA events, you know, local park tournaments. And so, you know, we spoke before about this Jewish thing, right? And so yeah. Phil, Phil Grayson, Jeff Miller, Steve Siegel, um, my boys, they befriended me and they would invite me to their clubs and to their houses and whatnot. And so my whole world just opened up. That's when I realized tennis wasn't a, just a black game, but I did realize that it was a game that could move you, that socially- Oh yeah. And so- I saw that people were always inviting me. They saw me play. Next you know, the parents tell me, invite him to the club, invite him to the house, invite him here, invite him there. And my world just opened up more. Oh, yeah. More. You know what well, I mean? tennis is a funny sport. You know, tennis and golf, if you're if you're you're good and you look good, both. I think both are important. Have good strokes. Have good strokes. You know, people really overestimate you. And I've always that's always been worked in my favor. Uh, you know, I think all of us tennis players. You just said something popular. You said, if you look good. Now, 
people would see me play and say my father was a doctor. Just as all the whites would say, you know, his father's a doctor. And uh, my father was a construction laborer. You understand? He was a trained brick mason, but he wasn't, they didn't allow blacks in the union at the time. So my father was in the construction labor union, very strong person in that union. But they made me a, 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 the son of a doctor just based on my stroke production. What you talking about? That's right. That's just right. My game looked. You understand? Yeah, yeah, I think the word elite comes in. When someone sees you look beautiful, they don't care where you're from. They've already made their opinion about you. Like, oh, you're, you're a beautiful person. You're you're a bright, you're a bright, intelligent person. Anyone who plays tennis like that yeah. must be, must be. Got it. You, you, you're so on point, man. You see it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. You know, it's funny you mentioned Jamaican. I I, I brought up another. I played with a guy in the boys' 16s. I wonder if you know him. I never would have remembered his name, but I can't believe I just did. Early, jo early, early Jones. Or early Jones. I know who early. name. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. So I, I yeah. played with him, and then I played with Weldon. I told you about Weldon Rogers. Oh, by the way, I found out he lives in, um, I looked him up. Took a while. Uh, Tucker, Georgia. That's where he lives, wow. and he's still t he's teaching tennis down there. Uh, he must be about 70, but I looked him up and he's still around. I'm glad to see. Oh, I hope he sees, I hope he sees this production. Huh? Let's track his down. I'll, I'll have somebody tracking him down for us. We'll get this number. Right, yeah, so. yeah. Um, okay. Let me ask you some more. So I kind of felt bad in a way because uh, I researched quite a bit. Like I said, you and I both found, uh, uh, talked about the eight before anyone else. I don't even know if anyone else still talks about it other than I only see yours in my posts. And no one else talks about it, but uh, you wrote your book, you copyrighted, you wrote your book in 2009. Right. I, I couldn't believe, I thought you just, I thought you published it about a year ago oh, and I feel terrible that I didn't know about it. The whole movement just caught on fire. And, uh, you know, this whole Black Lives Matter and just, yeah. you know, looking into it, you know, the history is the history. It doesn't change. So that's no. one of those things where that history doesn't change. And, um, yeah, I'm glad you became aware of it. Uh, I am, too. Before, I became aware of you at least it had to be 25. How long you been doing that eight board? About 25 years. As soon as that came out, Glenn Brooks turned me on to you. Oh, yeah. You remember Glenn Brooks? He was a radio just, guy. Yeah, I remember the name. I wonder how it is. Yeah, I Glenn know Brooks him. Was a radio, he was a radio guy, and he did a lot with tennis, and he had done an exhibition with Delos, maybe mentioned it up in Vermont with Brody uh, Miller. and But anyway, he's the one that opened me up to, to huh. who you were in the eight board. And so, yeah, that's right, the eight board. That's yeah, right. I was doing my thing, and he was like, okay, um, have you do you know who this person is and uh, so i didn't and that's but then we called you uh that's funny that's a long time yeah that's yeah, when it yeah, first yeah, came yeah, out yeah. about 1998 uh, i think it tells me i got a good memory so you know like that's what i do <laughs> hey you know one of the questions i had for you i can't help myself but how'd you get all this stuff did you go to the library is your mom did your mom give you all these articles how did you find all these articles in, in, right. in this book first of all all my life, people would ask me, how'd I get, you know, who are you? They see you playing, how did you, you know, I go to a tournament, wherever, how'd you get started in tennis? How did you, you know what I mean? And so, so once I came out of Hampton, I wanted, 
I was very proud of where I came from. I was proud of my roots. I was proud of the ATA. I was proud of my mentors. And so, and the opportunities that I had, and I was almost very arrogant about when you'd ask me, like it was beyond, you didn't say nothing, like, what do you think Black America was doing? You know what I mean? And so, um, so when I moved to Massachusetts permanently, because I've been coming up here since 1965, because um, I met my wife at Hampton, but, um, once I moved up here in 1980, I saw that you could have a library card at Amherst College, UMass, Mount Holyoke, Smith College. I'm like, I know all those schools, cool. yeah. I have a free card to colleges that cost $75,000. I couldn't believe it. So I got all the library cards I could get, right? In the winter, I would go down in the archives and get the microfiche and the micro. Yeah. There was no table of contents. There was nothing that existed. This was, but I'm talking about in 1990 and in the 80s. And I'd go in and I didn't know how to present it. And everybody was trying to, you know, like you got to reproduce, you know, then all of a sudden I realized I got to do this just like my rappers, just like his basement rap, man. I got to bring this out of the archives and show it just the way it is because people need to see where tennis was in our society at one point. When you look at, and those articles in the book, when I first started do, showing the history, I reenacted all of the complete pages that the article was in. So you, it, and then I did exhibits. I called it Royalty of the Colored Court. And that's what my exhibit was about Black America and Caribbeans and all of the non-white that participated in development. I called them Royalty of the Colored Court. This is what Arthur Ashe and Althea and us came from. We came from these Black doctors. We came from these educated, these successful people that created this opportunity for us. And this is what I didn't like about whenever we whenever we take one person and focus on them, they don't know that Arthur Ashe came from a community that built him. They don't know right. that these people built Althea. They built me because they felt obligated and they this was taught by our mentors that you're supposed to help. So they created these little clubs all over it and, and, the, and the communities around those clubs had opportunities. And so like uh, Kinkle Jones, Eugene Kinkle Jones, founder of the Alpha Greek organization, which is big with black. He was, you know, a, a me early member of the American Tennis Association of one of the founding members. He graduated from Cornell in like 1906. And so uh, Tally Holmes, who was the first Black to play in Wimbledon in 1924 came to America from Jamaica to win the ATA championship in 1920. So um, I had to be, I, you know, PM, people, PM. people always hear the oral story, but I wanted them to see it. So that's why they would always say, you need to tell your story. I'm like, no, this is not about my story. That's what they always do. I want you to see where tennis was in our society at one point and how. And when you see the newspaper articles, you got to see newspaper articles before NBA basketball was big, before Blacks were big in basketball. Sure. You'd be amazed at the collection of articles when you see that I took. So I couldn't put a whole big article in a book. So I took the tennis article out of these pages. But if you see the whole page, then you see I Josh. See. You would see where my parents always told me that they would go to the Negro Baseball League All-Star Games at Yankee Stadium, 40,000 people. See, I grew up hearing about all of this kind of thing. You know, people don't understand. So when you think about the Negro Baseball Leagues and when you think about how all those players got uh, put into the uh, professional leagues, but nobody thinks about the owners of the Negro teams that lost all those players for no money. Nobody paid right. them. 
they just came and took everybody. <laughs> and so, right. you know, like the whole economy, the whole, it was economies. It was a lot that went around this whole tennis world. Like in New York, where Althea was at the Cosmopolitan Club. Who do you think but the most well-off Blacks were coming in and out of the Cosmopolitan Club? You had the Savoy Ballroom, which was the number one ballroom in the world. You had Sugar Ray Robinson. You had Billy Eckstein and Joe Lewis and, you know, sure. uh, all of the famous Black people, Billy Holiday. So they all mingled at these same places, at these, at these Black uh, oases where you had these successful people. And if you could get a glimpse of them, then America looked like a different America to you. You saw some different stuff. So fortunately, I'm from New Jersey, so I grew up going to New York. I grew up going to the Apollo Theater and the Brooklyn yeah. Theater. And, you know, um, so I've seen both sides. I've had tremendous mentors on both sides, Black, white, Jewish. Like I told you, Dick Savitt played a big yeah. part in my development and a lot of other people. So, you know. Well, people don't know that there's a connection uh between Jews and Blacks. I mean, people just don't know that. No, because we came from the same neighborhoods in New Jersey. That's right. That's when right. When I graduated from college, the third club in the state of New Jersey was built called the Westfield Indoor Tennis Club, right? It was a Jewish family that was from Elizabeth, New Jersey. Then now they lived out in the suburbs. Man, they were so happy to take me in and make me the first pro at 22 years old, man. Arthur Ashe used to call me up there. Come on down to the Doral. I want you to run the Doral for me. I'm like, no, man, I'm not. You know, when he first got the position as the head of the Doral, first thing he did call me up. He was uh, playing a tournament in, uh, I think it was in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and so he called me like, yo, I want you to go down and run. You know, so, but anyway, this family, I had it so good. And when I used to tell the Berenson, I, um, the son of the people that owned the club, but he was a lawyer, like 20 years older than me. When I tell you, you want to go to a party with me tonight, him and his wife, my wife and I, I take New York to Arthur Ashe's apartment, Rod Laver, Jack Kramer, <laughs> everybody in the world at the party. God, like, holy cow. So anyway. Um, no, no, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, it, it's, I think it's a shame that uh, even pros forget the students forget the kids kids don't even know who Agassiz is uh, I think it's a shame right. that the pros and the kids today don't know the the rich history of tennis and and black tennis in, in color like you say people of color because uh it wasn't just blacks right there was a lot of no, we, had Filipinos, we had Filipinos in ATA Filipinos we had South Americans we had some Nicolas. good Mexican some good Mexican players and we had Willie uh Willie Oropez uh, Guillermo Oropez. I don't know whether you know him. He's from New York. He's from California. Played in New York. He's a good player. You know. So anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think I think it's important, but I don't even think the tennis pros themselves know about this stuff. Uh, really, no, they, not the ones that I've talked to. They, they, most people. Listen, the head of the Wimbledon Museum and Library sent me a letter. One of his friends sent him a book. My, the book. And he said, he's so embarrassed. He never heard of ATA, but he heard of Althea and Arthur, but he never right. heard of that. Here's the man that's the head of Wimbledon. So, you know, when you talk about hidden figures, uh, you couldn't go any further than tennis to, to you know, like when the number, yeah. you wouldn't even think that we had 150 clubs at, in 1939 in the country or 25,000 tennis players. Would you think like that? No. No. And I would not even think, like I said, that, that and I keep going back to this tennis was just invented and you guys were playing. I mean, that's, I mean, because our 
our educated class, our success class mirrored the white American middle class. See, so it's not poor white kids that play tennis, right? I mean, no. come on. In fact, I was just going to address that. That was my next thing is talking about the elite, because I know in the white players, when I was growing up, we were one of the poorest. My dad was just a CPA. That was it. You know, but there were a lot of doctors and lawyers' sons that played the game. I couldn't stand half the kids. They were they were cocky and conceited, and I didn't like them much. <laughs> and it sounds like the in the black tennis, it was very similar. It sounds like the highest yeah. echelon of people yeah, were yeah. playing tennis. I got black friends whose parents would, you know, they had their, their ancestry goes into the 1800s with physicians. You know what I mean? And so <laughs> right on down the line. And so yeah, still doctors and whatnot. It's Ash and Althea and myself that became the players and you understand a lot of, we went to college and whatnot, but the doctors, you know, we had a whole society that they repeated being doctors, but these people wanted to be represented at Forest Hills and in mainstream tennis. So that's how they created junior development programs for us. And, you know, this all kind of programs. That's what the ATA provided for us. I never, back in those days, man, you know, we used to say, when we're going to a USA tournament, you know, we say, we're going to a white tournament. That's how yeah. we distinguish. That's yeah. how you, you know, distinguish when going to a white tournament. That meant we going to the USTA. <laughs> if you just say white tournaments, you know you go to the ATA. Huh. You know, I remember playing my first ATA tournament. Uh, it was in Stanford, Stanford, Connecticut. If you remember that place, Stanford yeah. Park. Yeah, Scalzi Park, I think it was called. Yeah, Scalzi Park in Stanford, Connecticut, and that's where they had the in September they would have the ATA New England doubles, the New England Open. Okay. That's right. We played. We Weldon and I played that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but most you know, are very social as well as tennis. I was yeah. just going to say that I felt, you know, talk about, you know, today is election day. So I think it's kind of fitting that you and I are talking today. I don't know why. I just think it's fitting. But uh, it was very inclusive ATA. I was like, literally, maybe I think there was one other white guy there other than me. And then there was a, a lot of blacks and a lot of uh, Hispanics. But I had a great time and we did pretty well. I think we got to the, we did pretty well. We got to the semis at least. I can't remember. I don't think we won that. We didn't win it, but we did well. And, but they were great. I went to the party you yeah, know? Yeah. and it was, I didn't feel like an outcast. Yes. Yeah, you would not see her here, you know, like the ATA um, tournaments will social events as well as athletic. Yeah. The whole week. You understand? Uh, and so, and so it was, they had barbecue, we had barbecues and everything. And this event that he went to was a weekend tournament. What year was but that? No, in the early 1973 or four, 73, I think. See, but when you went to an ATA tournament, you went for the weekend. You didn't really go play a match and then leave. No, it didn't feel like uh, New England at all. It didn't feel like any LTA at all. Nationals, traditionally, people would go on the campus with the ATA Nationals. They might not see a ball get hit. They play pinochle and bridge for a whole week. <laughs> yeah. Back and backgammon. All over the country. You and backgammon. Yeah. And I mean, if you had that crowd of people. So, you know, when you talk about 5,000 people move going through a tournament, you know, like the ATA was the event. Now, yeah. you know, the sad part about it is back in those days, Arthur, everybody knew everybody because you had to go through the ATA. They had to endorse you. Okay. So now, only the top players go to the USGA Nationals, know each other. That's so right. Black kids, they don't know each other around the country. So they don't get the support system that we had. 
because they don't know one another all over the so it, it, it's such a stressful because they don't come from tennis communities that's what's that's what like osaka and all, all the girls unfortunately i feel for them because they were developed to be gladiators they right. didn't come in a community tennis club they came up in programs that were trying to make champions not build communities and so we came out of community that you had an opportunity to be but the emphasis was like first of all it was amateur tennis so getting a full scholarship to hampton was like pro for me how yeah. much more pro you want you got a full scholarship to college <laughs> you know that's, what I mean? that's your bucket list right there man i was you know so like um those days so it's a, it, was, it was a whole different kind of environment with the ata you know, I think I think that's people always say that uh, the reason the Europeans are kicking our asses so much in the last 20 years is because of the rackets and the, the fact that they play soccer. And I think those are two big reasons. But I spent a lot of time over there the last 30 years, uh, maybe altogether five, six years. It's a, still a little bit like the 70s or 60s back there. It's still more grassroots. And I do think there's something healthy about the the. Um, the community of tennis players, you know, they spend and over there, they spend the whole day playing and they play with anybody or if then if there's nobody to play, they hit against the wall. But, but today here in the United That's States, I grew up. it's a business. You know, part of how, you know, part of what ruined American tennis, they just they're getting rid of all the clay courts. See, when I was young, I agree I had to be around the older club members and learn how to, we had to roll water roll calcium chloride we had to put the lime lime lines down the street so i learned from the older guys a whole culture around preparation before you enjoy something that's right and then when you finish playing you gotta you gotta clean the court for the guy after you the whole community men's thing man it was so incredible what i learned from mr davis the, the, the first he had to be the first one that the the white guy that sold the courts to so Mr. Davis knew how to do the courts. And then there was a, a local um, undertaker. And um, they're in their 90th. They're just having their 90th year. And so these are kind of people that were the original startup people, you know, back in the day, just over 100 years ago, that just North End. But unfortunately, by 1975, North End Tennis Club was disbanded. The players were playing at, like I said, that's when like the doctors, the Jewish doctors who invite the doc, black doctors, why don't you come and join our club? You know what I'm saying? And so, and so then the little two court facility with limited, it was great when you didn't know anything else or had anything else. Once you saw other stuff and had more opportunity than the people left. Yeah. So yeah, no, I think you're right about the clay courts, Art, because I was brought when I was 11, I got my first job. I got $5 a day and I, I brushed the courts every hour. We had four courts and I could walk, to, I could walk to them and I brushed those, you know, 10 times a day, every hour on the hour, I'd brush them and then do the lines. And then once every day or every other day, I can't remember. I did the calcium chloride with the rolling and all that. And it was more of a lifestyle back then. Now it's more of a business. And I think um, that's why you see so much of the uh, mental anguish. You know, I don't know what you want to call it uh, today uh, with a lot of these players, but you never saw that back in the 70s. We knew there was pressure, but it was still more of a, well, if I don't win today, I'll get it tomorrow. You know, like I said, it, it was more community. Uh, it wasn't as much tennis. So 
these people don't have any time to relax. They don't have any holistic time really to like take a walk. They walk on treadmills. You don't walk out in the country, walk in the woods or anything where it's healthy. Right. You walk on a treadmill. You understand? So the pace, yeah. the people, like you got to burn out because you're putting, you're putting too much in the, in a short period of time. So then the mental burnout comes. If Ash, we had all of Black America behind him. Everybody wanted to see all that successful. Everybody in HA wanted Althea to be successful. And so they came from communities. These people don't come from communities. I mean, uh, Serena and Venus are great. But they ain't build tennis in the black community. Their success is not, I don't see it in the, in terms of, you got a lot of fathers with their daughters out there trying to make it in the pro world. Right. But you don't have that community tennis that you had. No, I think it's very it's unhealthy compared to the way we grew up. I think we're actually very lucky in retrospect. Well, without a doubt, you know what I'm saying? Because of, like I said, it's, it's one is a community and the other was just pure gladiator. You go to academies, you know, like, um, you know, when I watch the commentators on television, I watch and I see the way they talk about Coco's forehand. They let the whole world know if you stay up in her forehand, if you're good enough to stay up in that forehand long enough, you'll break through. Now, so I say, well, you're a coach just like I am. Why do people let Coco have an unorthodox forehand when she's been playing tennis all these years and knew they haven't coached her to the, to the point where she could you know, put her hand on top of the racket instead of being under the racket all the time. Get her hand up on, that's where the nunchucks and things. I'll be like, Coco, I'll show you how to do the nunchucks and then you'll have dexterity in your fingers and in your hand and you will have the grippers like that. You won't have to go, they hitting with the back of their forearms instead of, you're not, the forearm is not rolling over the, they're behind it. You're up in here, man. And you understand? So, you oh, know. Yeah. You know, a lot of these players are great, and, and we try to use everybody as an example, but you can't. You can't. I mean, that's why a guy like Federer was so great for the game, because oh, yeah. you finally got somebody who had a beautiful figure eight, who was balanced as hell, right. and, and he lined up every shot. He didn't jump out of his skin to hit the ball, and 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 that was really necessary for the game. I never thought that the commentators or the even the pros – utilized him enough because right. that 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 guy that man alone could have grown the game if you used him in the right way exactly his style is so much healthier yes yes it's a way of playing it's you know it's funny even when when guys are growing up like i remember when i was watching andy murray one of my other favorite players beautiful game yeah. the first thing i said was that serve's going to kill him that serves going to hurt his low back and his hip. First time I saw uh, Patrick Rafter with his his shoulders level on the serve instead of slope, like it should be, right? One hip up, one hip down. But he was like he he came into it like Hingis. I said that guy's shoulders going to be beat up by the time he's twenty five. Sure yeah, enough, yeah. Murray went out with a bad hip. <laughs> you know, Rafter went out at twenty six years old with a bad shoulder. I mean, you can see it coming. But yeah. these guys, they're not, they're treated like horse. And you know what I mean? And then they just inject them, go out there, you're a tough guy, you can do it. And it doesn't serve them very well. Right. right. In my opinion, I don't know. No. You know, let me ask, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, good. No, you, you asked the question. I was going to ask you a little, I, I, you know, in reading your book, I learned a lot. And, and one of the things I never knew about was Davis Cup. Please tell us, because I know people are going to want to know. Tell us about Davis Cup and Mr. Davis, because I never knew exactly where that came from. Okay, so from my research, 
I saw in 1921, I'm, I'm in the basement of, uh, I think it was Mount Holyoke, mm -hmm. and I'm recomposing, I'm, I gotta, in order to get a whole page, I might have to have six printouts of the microfilm just to sure. recomp the whole page to read the uh, article. So in 1921, all of a sudden I see Dwight Davis umpires. I was like, what? This is in a black newspaper, you know what I'm saying? So I'm like- I read it, I read it. You know, so I go there, it was mind blowing. Okay, so now we get to 1923 and I see where Dwight Davis let Eugene Kinkle Jones and Gerald, he was uh, the head of the Urban League nationally in New York. They lived in Flushing. Eugene Kinkle Jones and Gerald Norman was one of the first educators big time in New York State. Dwight Davis created the National Public Parks, part of the USGA. You are familiar with that. Yes, that was that didn't exist. So under the existing USLTA, he couldn't get no black dudes in there. So this is what I, I saw in 1921. He experienced a class of black people. Not only were they, he experienced a black class of black people. You understand? These yes. Doctors and the lawyers, and these were the early yes. on people. So these were the ones that didn't have the greatest games. They were the first ones, but they were the educated. You understand? So I see in 19, this 1921 AJ Nationals was at the Suburban Gardens, an amusement park owned by black people, founded in 1920 and existed until about 1945. The, the real estate value made them sell out. But anyway, they have tennis courts and a stadium for the ATA Nationals, Dwight Davis umpires. And then I see in 1923, he forms the National Public Parks part of the USTA and lets these two black guys play in the tournament in there. Right? Now, Oscar Johnson goes on to win the National Public Parks tournament in 1948. Still no appearance for out there, anybody in U.S. Open or anything. California would allow, they would play National Public Parks Championship, was played in California. Oscar Johnson lived in California. Jimmy McDaniel was from California. California black guys had opportunities to play with Bobby Riggs, Pancho Gonzalez, all kinds of people. Sure. Right? So I see where these guys played in the National. So like I said, um, Oscar Johnson wins the National Public Parks. And then in 1961, Doug Sykes, you got to look him up. Yeah, I do remember that. Doug Sykes played uh, number one for University of California at Berkeley. And so um, those two won the National Public Parks. But anyway, 1923 is when Dwight, and that alerted me. I was like, this guy, guy Dwight Davis was much more than people realize he was. Yeah, now, that's now I'm seeing the guy. I know he founded Davis Cup, and he, but now I'm seeing racially that he was out in front. Now you got to realize that I went to Hampton University. You know, one of the things that I real realize I, I just brought to my attention that very few blacks and much, much fewer whites know that there were many black historically black colleges that were founded by white men. People don't know that. So you don't, so no. like Hampton University was founded by Samuel Chapman Armstrong, a white guy that was a graduate of Williams College and he was a general during the Civil War. Same wow. General Howard at Howard University. 
These oh. guys, they were generals over what they called the Negro troops and fell in love with black people in America and their plight as, ex, as just being freed. And these guys founded schools. You know, and I start realizing why a lot of times uh, white men in America get hostile because we don't have enough affirmative talk about the contributions that that were made racially. So that's what I'm saying. I had a lot of Jewish guys that helped me, helped George Stewart, non-Jews that helped me white. You understand? And so we had we had these people that, so that's what I really realized that at Hampton, we have um, Samuel Chapman Armstrong, the founder. Then our major hall is Ogden Hall. That was another general, Ogden. You understand? Howard University got an Ogden with him. You understand? So if you investigate, you you find quite a few black colleges that were founded by white guys. Yeah, man. And it's amazed me that people don't know that, you know? So, so do you, you, know, do you think, little, do you think, do you think it's you know, politics, you know, cause they want us, they, they want us like people this. People don't know history. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, yo man, yeah, I told a guy this morning, I said, you know what? If, other whites knew that a lot of these black colleges were founded by whites. They would donate. <laughs> they would donate to the cause. They would understand what it's all about. People don't, you don't know anything about abolitionists now. So he's really, you know what I mean? We all say right. black lives matter, but don't nobody make, they make it seem all black. They were really, you understand? It's gotta, it's not weaved. It's not weaved together. It, it's not the story, not easy. Uh, we didn't get I keep, I, I keep alone. You know, I, I I keep wondering if it's done purposely. I mean, I hate to say it, and I don't want to get too well, political. I don't want to get too political, but I mean, you know, uh, people like when, when you're at odds with each other. They like well, when you're... With somebody, somebody's in control, but you know what? We know as coaches, see, one thing I know as a coach, that when I coach a kid or adult, anybody, we have a dominant and a non-dominant. The athlete can only be as good as his non-dominant is. That's right. That's what the figure eight is all about. That's balance. right. That's right. Equality. It's about balance and all That's right. wholeness it's and all. oneness. And so we're not about oneness in America. They, they haven't weaved this non-dominant. Look at the black man is non-dominant. So they call him a minority and push him over to the side. Right. <laughs> you said that that's not weaving him in. So we understand that so we go weave them in, then we gotta have a, a situation where there's balance. We gotta have coordination. We don't have a coordination. Any, any coach knows you gotta get the kid coordinated before he can, you understand? So it's like that's why we load, that's why we do it the way we do it, you understand? And so yinging and yanging and you understand it's so that's right. I, I so, prefer that. I prefer that. That's that's how it, it's gotta happen. It, it, it this America is, yeah, that's a we got a chance of being the big, you know, it never was a melting pot, nothing melted. You said we just had a pot of diversity, nothing melting there, you understand? Now we're hoping that how we fuse this together, you know, into a, you know, like when I do the Cinewally sticks, I'm weaving, I'm weaving, you understand? But we're not weaved in this society. No, I, I think that's a really, a really good point, but that's, that's where sports brings it in though. I told you, I traveled with Weldon for like seven months. We traveled the watch tour and uh, boy, you learn a lot just hanging out. But on the other hand, 
you also learn that there's not much difference. You're both two tennis players out there slugging it out uh, against the world. And, hey, and you should have seen Steve Siegel and I in uh, in Leon Solent, England, getting on our way to Bournemouth and whatnot. And Steve, we get off. He's a Jewish cat that never ate outside yeah, of, I've heard of New Jersey. You understand? So, you know, he was cautious about eating anything. And here I'm a black dude. You should have seen the two of us. It was hilarious. Here's a black guy that never slept outside of a black neighborhood until he right. went to college. And here's Siegel. You understand? So, yeah, we were, you know. Was, and, and, you know, it's funny you bring that up. That's the same with me. I used to spend weekends, uh, or when we played Eastern tournaments, I'd spend weekends at Weldon's house. His dad was a reverend, Reverend right. uh, Washington. Yeah, and he was a cool Reverend, guy. Reverend Washington. Reverend yeah, Washington. that's yeah. right. And he, they lived in Queens. So yeah. I, I got an eyeful. You know, I'm just a Jewish kid from Connecticut. And at 17, all of a sudden, I'm spending a week at a time, Christmas vacation, stuff like right. that and i'm i'm just hanging out with these brothers and sisters drinking ripple i can't remember what the fuck we were, you know, it was just so different yeah. for me yeah, you know, you and you could play back then you could play i remember god this is weird i, I remember i used to make a weldon laugh because i would imitate all the older guys that would come to visit his father uh, you know, and but you could do that back then. You can't. I used to call one guy the understand man because every other every other second he'd go, you understand? You understand? I'm like, yeah. fuck yeah, I understand. I'm sitting right here in front of you. And he would laugh at me. He would laugh at me because I'd make fun of him. Or, uh, you know, there were there were guys that had these like idiosyncrasies. But you could play back then. I, maybe it was because it was New England. I don't know. But um but it just didn't seem for the tennis players like that big of a stretch. Now, maybe it was at the country club level. I don't know. But I was never a country club guy. I, you know, Scousey Park, my swimming tennis club, which was, I think, uh, $75 for the summer. You know, so it wasn't like a rich tennis Listen, club. You know, so, but we know. We know it's America. So, you know, we know there's anti-Semitism. We know that there's. You know, so we know these ingredients in America. We know this. So, you know, I know this. So traveling with a Jewish boy, not travel like traveling with some straight up wasp, the different kind of thing, man. It was, Peter Fremling was a different scene than Jeff Miller, than, than Steve Siegel. Right. Peter was my boy. Peter used to come around from the time he's, you know what I mean? So, but I knew Peter's father as a player. We used to meet up, meet Steagles. We would go to the West, the New Jersey Tennis Championship, played at the Westfield Tennis tennis club but i mentioned the westfield indoor club that was built by jews in the late 60s westfield tennis club was built in the early 1900 and it was and you know maybe one jewish person after a while you know they back in the day it was like it was exclusive and that's where the state championship so siegel and i would go but we know we ain't going to no banquets we're not going to no parties we're not right so you know back in those days i used to ask the you know i used to ask the guys like how does a young black cat know the friendly white guy from the white guys that's the enemy when they all live in the same neighborhood? That's what I used that's to say. That's a good point. That's I, interesting. How do I know who to trust and who not to trust? When you all live in the same neighborhood, you know how, how you know, so it was a it was an introduction to different world from those guys, you for, for my boys also, because I would bring in a, a texture of conversation that was completely, you know, different than what they were accustomed to. Uh, when I was playing in Florida with Weldon, 
we would see old signs. I think I told you old signs where you could barely read it, but I took, a, I mean, I, I took a mental picture and I thought I'd never see anything like that. I thought, I thought this was way passe, but it was from the sixties and it said no Jews, no blacks, no dogs at a, it was at a tennis country club. And I kid you not I read it. And it really, it really hit me hard because I'm like, I never thought I would see that and feel unwelcome. So, you, yeah. you know, so, but I'm, we were playing in Florida and, and you know, that's the South. So right. I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing things got better in the mid sixties to the seventies is what I'm thinking. Well, hey, listen, think about the little tennis clubs that the little circuits were played in, in Florida, right? Yeah. In them neighborhoods, like where Trayvon got killed. Oh, uh. Think about what I felt like, man. I had 10 rackets stacked up in the back of my car window. Like, I'm not lost. I'm supposed to be here. I know where I'm going. You understand? And so just think, but when you think about Trayvon, which was a couple of years ago, think about what I think about in the 70s and all that. That's right. for me. I didn't want to do it. I didn't yeah. want, to, I want to be a teaching pro. I could go to New Jersey and make money, live a good life, go to New York, spar. Everything about Vetus Gerolitis was my boy. He copied all my style. He was a great guy. Vetus would come to the Harlem Armory, Dickie Stockton, Vetus Gerolitis, Hulk Henry Bonus, you know what I'm saying? Bob Benz, everybody come to the Bob Harlem Benz, Armory. Yeah. Everybody in those days would come to the Harlem Armory, you know what I'm saying? And we would do our thing. And, uh, yeah. and, That's and funny. You know, I did that too. Back in the, in the early 70s, I went there with Paul Gherkin. John No Grady and a few and a few That's others. What I'm saying. And, and we would we would do these not exhibitions. We'd bring the kids out on the court, a lot of mostly black kids, and we'd hit with them and we'd give them some lessons. You know, I was only back a teenager. In the day, we had tournaments there. So I played in a tournament, the Clean Air Classic, back at the 66th Street Armory, Park Avenue. That was high class. But we played the we played the qualifying tournament at the Harlem Armory, and then the main event was at the uh, you know 66 and Park Armory. So, you know, like I saw what their club was like in there. Their armory club was totally different than the, than the 42nd and 5th Avenue Harlem Armory Club. You understand? The Park yeah. Avenue Club was all indoors. It's been like that since the 1920s or before. And it was, you know, really an uh, indoor complex. So. Yeah. Yeah, one of the issues with indoors and, and uh, like you say, marginalized or whatever people indoors is very expensive. Even now, I went to New York a few years ago to coach and I didn't pay for it. Luckily, my client was wealthy enough, but uh, I think it's about a buck and a quarter just to play tennis for an hour. Hundred and twenty twenty bucks. Yeah, it's a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money. I mean, yeah. uh, that was that another was thought I, I had when you were younger. Um, did you play in the winter outdoors? Listen, the most beautiful thing about my life is that we had an armory where the indoor tennis was that was within walking distance from where I lived, just like the outdoor black club. Then the armory was on the border of the black, excuse me, black neighborhood. And so it was like $10 a season all winter, 50 cents an hour. So me and my wow. people I had indoor tennis accessible to me all through my, it was amazing. My life has been amazing. You know what I'm saying? Somebody designed it for me. I, I didn't design this life. You've I'm been blessed. It. I'm living it, but it was designed somewhere else. <laughs> I hear, I hear you. Uh, you've been blessed. I, I think you have. I think a lot of us have, if we get to live our whole lives playing tennis and teaching tennis and teaching life through yeah. tennis, I, I think we are blessed. I, I really do. Um, you see me, 
the day that this woman, so I'm giving this woman a lesson 25 years ago or so. She comes to me and she says, what can you do with this? And it's a rainbow gymnastic ribbon. Yeah. So I say to myself, I say, what does, why doesn't this white woman just leave me alone? You understand? I, you know, like, you know, so I take the ribbon, but I'm, you know, like, okay. About two days later, I'm at home doing my rhythmic, you know, I'm doing my rhythmic thing. I'm doing my, I'm doing my eights, but I don't know it. You understand? And I've been doing it all my life. All our dances are all, everything black is, is in here. You understand? So exactly, exactly. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, I pick up the ribbon. Here it is right here, brother. Yep, I'm right familiar. You understand? And so I started moving that ribbon. Hold on. I started, you understand? As the yep. music was going, the music was going, I started doing forehands and backhands. And I was like, oh my God, there it is. And yeah. I, I didn't have a conversation with anybody. I was like, no, here it is. And yeah. So then, you know, so then my life, my life changed. And then, see, I really do stuff with bull whips. You know, I don't know if you've seen me too, me too, me too, me too. <laughs> you know what, man? You know what's funny? You're, you're like truly like a brother from another mother because I did all, honestly, uh, we'll talk about this the next time. We'll stick to the ATA. We got to stick to yeah. something. Yeah. Okay. By the way, I can't, I can't see you. Bring it, bring the, bring the camera okay. down a little bit. There we go. So yeah, no, no. Yeah, like I said, brother from another because yeah, so, I've been doing the bull whip and I've been using those, I've been using those ribbons. You know, I did something for Deepak Chopra about 20 years ago. He has a thing called Chopra Kids in La, La Costa. And I did I used the ribbons with those kids and had the kids on the eight boards doing right, the right, ribbons. Right. Yeah. And uh, that's funny, man. That's funny. Yeah, um, go ahead. Well, I think we, yeah, this is too easy for us to to digress, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, you got these offshoots that we can shoot off into. <laughs> yeah, oh, so easily. In fact, if you do me the honor, next time we talk, or give me a next time, number one, I want to talk eight. I want to talk rhythm. I want to talk music. I want to talk other things that are tangent, to, right are tangent to tennis. What's hey, that? There's two parts of me. There's the history, and there's what I do now. What I do, right? And so whole rhythm movement, whole you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. you see those clubs? You see them clubs in the background? Yeah, I'm familiar. I, I watch everything you do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, tro I troll you, man, as they say. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. So we we got this. Uh, yeah, that that we're gonna go into the music part of it. Uh, yes, we are. But let me ask you some more questions. Uh, number one, uh, uh, because we've talked for a while now, let me ask you about your book. Um, where can people get it? And then the next question is, can I help promote it on my site? Because I would be honored. Uh, I work with uh, Dick Gould and some other great people like yourself. And I think, well, not like yourself, just different, but great people as well. And uh, I, I'd like to uh, be able to offer it to people on my site and okay, my, so my members. The best way is to message me at Facebook, Art Carrington. Okay. Right. I'll put and that. I will put that in writing on this yeah. on this uh, summary. Or, or you can uh, call Nasir. Can I give you his number? Sure. Go ahead. I'll put. I'll also write it down. But go ahead. Give it to people. Call Nasir at four one three six eight seven eight seven five eight. 
Okay. Right? You can contact me at 413-977-1967, the one you have. 1967, right. And like I said, I'd be happy to, and uh, I'd feel great about putting it on. Uh, I've got uh, some pretty neat things on my site as well. I don't know if you've been to my site. Uh, if not, I'll have to get you over there one day. I'll get over there, to, to, you know, uh, this evening. Just um, Cool. Yeah, I'd like to put you over there because that's where I have my boards and all okay, the stuff that I would, use. Can you send me a link to it or or do I just Google you? No, I'll send you a link. Okay. I'll send you a link. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to be able to offer it there because we might get a whole different group of people coming to my yeah. site. And they all come for the same reason, by the way. You'd love my members. Everyone in my group uh, all do the figure eight. They're all believers. Yeah. So you'd love yeah. that. Same thing with my inner core, my parents, all my, you know, yeah. We're in, yeah. we're in, and we right? and we talk about infinity. That's why I knew you'd, you'd pick up on Rudolf Steiner because he was kind of a Renaissance man back in the mid 1800s. And he talked all about uh, projective geometry, things that you seem to talk about yourself, but you don't use those exact words. But I figured you might have researched him a little bit. Well, this woman told me about him in the club a couple of uh -huh. years ago. Yeah, a, a club member. She had been like, yo, you got to get to him. So. Well, let me ask you the last questions. What happened to the ATA? And when did it go? Because I, like I said, I played it in the 70s, but then I stopped hearing about it like in the mid 80s or something. Well, see, the ATA kind of lost its mission of bringing black tennis players, developing, you know, like promoting tennis in African America that they started wanting to like compete at one point with the USGA as far as developing junior players, you don't have the finances for that. And so what happened when the ATA, like you played it in tournament, the ATA never got to, it wasn't like 4.0, 5.0. So what happened was the successful middle-class blacks that would go to the ATA traditionally, they didn't want to go get killed by HBC players. It was only one, it's not like the US Open where you could just go to the ATA and do other things. It became a one tournament organization. So oh. you know, it, it, the national became the one tournament. We didn't have the New England sectional events that we had, the infrastructure that we had in, in Black America. Like I said, a lot of a lot of people got you know like the. So you start to lose your gr grassroots. Uh, well, what happened thing? is. Well, the talented 10th that they used to say, we had to educate the talented 10th of black people. This is some some old stuff, you understand? To be the teachers of black people. Once the talented 10th gets integrated into a neighborhood that now is economics, they can buy their way in, then you lose all of that leadership, it's gone. Yeah, it gets diluted, it gets diluted. Yeah. So that's why I said the Jewish cats kept their clubs. They didn't give up all their clubs. But Black America gave, and when they got the call, they we bought the integration, integrate into another club. You understand? And so, you know, like, so there's no community. That club is away from the community that we originally. You know what I mean? So that's you lost your foot. You lost your foot. The ATA lost its focus a bit. Yeah, and the ATA Nationals, they had. Uh, 400 kids at the ATA Nationals this year. The ATA, oh, okay. Nationals, the ATA Nationals is really big with the National Junior Tennis League population. 
That's what oh. fills that ATA void. The National Junior Tennis League pumps money into sending the kids to the oh. You understand? And so the, so the Nationals are still going on, but all those local, like Scousy Park, they're all gone. Yeah. You know where the Nationals goes on? At, at the National Training Center in Florida. They have like six, 700 players that come in between adults and kids. But it's the National Junior Tennis League that's carrying it. Not Black middle class America. I see. I see. So it's really diluted at this point. Yeah. You don't have it as a, you know, it's not a focal point of black middle-class America. They can go a lot of places now. They got a lot of recreational opportunities. And when they want to raise consciousness, they go to, you know, different events that will do that. That if that's, you know what I mean? But, you know, the kids, so now, you got these kids in a lot of private schools and whatnot. So a lot of times you see a black event with with the more upper middle class black kids would be all those kids that live in neighborhoods without other black kids. They they need they need other comrades that are socioeconomic like like um I have I'm in Amherst. So I got black faculty. My my people are, you know, um faculty uh, at Amherst College, sure. different colleges, UMass. What not? You know, they tenure at these places, so that that's a different person than you know, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, the tennis league person. Yeah, that's primarily a different. That's you know what I mean. So the black guy with money will take his son to a club where Jack Brody is in Connecticut and get some lessons. He doesn't have to go to the National Junior Tennis League in Stanford, where it's an urban five hundred one c three. Right. So for me, like in my business, I've always been proud. Like I had my my summer camp that I had for many years, Bill Cosby's kid, Jim Rice, the baseball, all of the top shelf black people would send their kids to my camp in the summer. And I used to tell um, people on campus, the president of college, that's why we have the indoor facility and all the facilities. I would tell them this is not a fresh year fund black people. These are Weldon Rogers people. These are, you understand, this is not, you know, this is brown here, baby. You understand, this is- I dig it. This is not the Fresh Air Fund. This is not the National Junior Tennis League. This is not some funding that somebody white funded. But let's talk one more time for junior sakes about uh, to know is to grow. Uh, right. I still I still believe that college tennis wow. is a great thing, and and that's where you ought to go because such a small percentage make it in tennis. And uh, I'd like to get your thoughts finally it's, it's, on that because I'm sure you've got some. First of all, you're funny. I put that in books. A lot of books, when I send it to Tiafo and different people, it's obviously to know is to grow. <laughs> so that's what I've, I've used that so many times. Let's add that to the things we have in common. Yeah. Um, and uh, my grand, you know, I got two granddaughters playing at LSU, right? I do. Great team down there. Boy, they're doing great LSU. Listen, I don't know how they're doing, but, you know, I don't really follow it because I get emotional, so I stay away from it. I follow it. They, they're doing great. Oh, okay, cool. Well, you know, that's still the life of the of my little sport. Hey, listen, let me tell you something, Jack. I'm proud of the fact that I tell everybody that when they start with me, you started in a place that has a lot of rich history that's different. You this is not, especially what I love to tell black kids, this is not a fresh air fund. This is this is some some stuff that goes way back with me that I'm passing to you. And so yeah. I'm very proud of the history and my mentors. And uh, and of the ATA, I don't know how to 
grow it without the in you, you grow it. Hey, listen, I don't want to talk about it on air. So um, I hear you. We need more participation from the Weldons and the arts and you know the people that really came through it. We need you know like I think I got a hot my my um, Facebook page has more dialogue than the ATA. I understand. Yeah, I agree. Participation and integration, yeah. both. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you do. So anyway, like, all right. When's the next one? When's the next one? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do, do it. Then uh, we'll do it either this week or next. Because, like I said, we gotta spend at least an hour on the eight. Because you and I, I can't imagine we have much different, but we might have a few things that we could uh, add to each other's repertoire. You know? Got it. I'd like to. So all right. Let's we'll we'll talk and set up the time for next week. Let's. I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you very much. All right, thanks, Jack. We'll talk to you later, bro. You got it. All right, later.